This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two and a half minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on Radio Marinara. This is 3 Triple R. I'm Anthony Boxall. And I'm Bron Burton. And I got that the wrong way around, Bron. What? I usually say this is Triple R and this is Radio Marinara. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm still coming down from the amount of chocolate that was surfacing around our neighbourhood <laughs> last night. It's a funny thing, isn't it? The old Halloween oh, or Cobbaween. Or chocolate de ween. Unbelievable. Like, they sent out, all of ours went out in different directions and um, the older ones are off by themselves circling the neighbourhood. Yeah. And um, coming back with half pillowcases. Yes. Well, yeah, but what's with the pillowcases? We had a pillowcase thing happening too. It just must be like all of the young ones are kind of going, all right, what you got to do is you've got to get a pillowcase and then you fill it up. It's like the biggest receptacle possible. Yeah. Yeah. That you can physically carry. That's right. You know, you would back a truck up if you could. That's but, you. know, yeah. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. We got into some discussion about um, various costumes and how there's a big range of costumes and some people go for the traditional, you know, skeletons and scary masks and, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, and all that kind yes. of things and witches and others kind of are doing a little bit more 
you get everything really, yeah. don't you? You get oh, yeah. the Disney princess. Yeah. Um, you, then you get the 10, 20, 12, 13, 14-year-olds who turn up in a T-shirt with a tiny bit of face paint going, <laughs> yeah, give me the lollies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the best one I ever had, actually two best ones I ever had at the door. Um, one was a couple of years ago with his kid who had put his T-shirt, he's put his shirt on a collared <laughs> shirt back to front and he put it over his face. And then when I answered the door, he pulled it down and went, boo, I'm a ghost. And I went... You get ten points for originality, and um, but the I reckon, I reckon my pick out of all of them yeah. has um, got to be last night. A bunch of teenage girls came around at about seven thirty. So a bit older. Yeah, a bit older because yeah, yeah. you get your first wave yeah, yeah, yeah. with the, the little, little, ones. little yeah, tiny yeah, yeah. ones. That's so cute. That's right. And then there's a little pause while everyone's having dinner, and then there's a second <laughs> wave. And um, anyway, they were all kind of dressed up like Bratz dolls. But then there was this one girl. <laughs> what the? This, Bratz dolls? Oh, you know those Bratz dolls? They're... Seriously? They were dressed up as Bratz dolls? Oh, well, a bit dolls? like that. You know, or that... just that's what they were wearing yeah. in life. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. no, no. They weren't oh. intentionally trying oh, to be okay. like Bratz yeah. dolls. But, you know, they, they went for that kind of gothic teenage look. Yeah, yeah. And uh, vampire, you know. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, there was this one girl and she was kind of dressed a little bit like that. But she had this... No, she wasn't. She kind of just had standard dress on and then she had this bright orange wig. And um, I looked at her and I said, do you mind if I ask who are you? And she said, I'm Donald Trump. (laughs) And I thought it's going to take a lot to top that. Oh, that is really good. What a classic. First time I've heard of um, Donald Trump being used as a Halloween theme. (laughs) But I hope your mum's very proud of you. a bunch of 14-year-old boys dressed as girls. Very well dressed as girls, ah, which is really unusual. Like yeah. that would be, you know, like in the twenties, what men, you know, men would be doing because every chance a man gets that dress a woman. But you know, like, but it was fourteen-year-old boys, and some of them look were seriously convincing wow. young girls. So you know, maybe there's like a whole gender thing going on there too. Very know? interesting. Anyway, you are on Radio Mirror, and how we are yes. going to talk about um, marine things? We got to acknowledge the, at least the last half hour, if it's not the entire last three hours. Magnificent, thank Fantastic. you. Gosh. Tim Namilla, Monique, always yeah. an absolute pleasure. Just amazing. They're kind of debriefing after they the are. show. They are. They're not listening. No, but it, what a wonderful <laughs> show. And if you didn't get a chance to listen, it will be up live. Yes, Radio On Demand. Yeah, you can just grab it now and wind it back and have a listen as you go for a wander. Yeah. Very much worth it. Or maybe even wait till after our show and do it. Yeah, that's probably a better idea. <laughs> and today, <laughs> speaking of, should we tell people what we're going to do in this show? Let's. Um, you know the way... I, I, I'm got to, I just got to say, you know, because of that horse race thing, I thought, well, we're going to do something about horses, and I've been holding this article for a while. Everyone knows male seahorses get pregnant. There's new research that just came out in the last couple of months, um, in fact, in time for Father's Day, um, from the University of Sydney about how pregnant they get. I'm going to leave it hanging there. Okay. Because it's, it's really interesting. Awesome. All this genetic studies. So... And then after that? After that, I've got uh, a little bit of news, just a few bits and pieces that have come my way. But then we're going to be crossing live to Queensland, I think Brisbane, but we shall find out, um, to speak with Dr James Udy. And he's the Chief Scientist of Healthy Waterways and they've gone in collaboration uh, with a couple of different groups, including the Victorian Association for Geography Teachers. And I know I've got that name um, technically incorrect, but that's basically who they are. Right, yeah. Yes. And um, they've run a program over the last week where the teachers have gone on a, uh, not a three-hour tour, but a (laughs) six-day tour through Moreton Bay and learning all about seagrass ecosystems and um, the various ecological threats to those and the importance for those particular ecosystems. So for dugongs and sea turtles on a boat, they've been doing live crosses back to their classrooms. So they've been running kind of live... 
uh, no, they classes. haven't really. Yeah. Wow. And so all this uh, information is going to be used, um, and that's what we're going to be talking with James about. So wow. how how this how, cool. uh, how it actually came about, and and what the teachers are doing with all this information. So. Yeah, really cool. And then cool. to finish up the show, I know, I think you talked about you talked about some of the winners a couple of weeks ago, but the Victorian Coastal Awards were on at the Arts Centre two weeks ago and the Marine and Coastal Glitterati were out in their flippers and, um, and wetsuits and um, tiaras. And, uh, That's an interesting look. <laughs> you, you wouldn't believe it. The Arts Centre was so unimpressed. Was it wet? Because everyone went into the moat after that. Oh, wow. And no, they didn't. Um, so, yes, it was wet because everyone... Like, I don't know about you, but every time I go there, I have to put my hand against that wall. The window. Yeah. I just, yeah. I think and it's I, I a That was thing. like, a, why did I do that with my suit on? Anyway, um, I'm gonna, we're going to go through the winners because there was just, it's always a marvellous, I popped in, it's always a marvellous um, evening, incredible, wonderful community and business and other winners. So we'll run through them all, give them all a bit of airtime rather than pick out one. Great. So you got a bit of weather? I do. Because it's really, we have it at the moment. Weather. We do. We could never describe this as not weather. It's always there. <laughs> but it's really In some weather. Form or it's other. like proper weather at the yeah. moment. Yeah. 25 degrees. Wasn't it humid yesterday? Oh my God. <laughs> I just, I want to whinge. <laughs> it was humid. Uh, high chance of rain, heavy falls or thunderstorms possible in the <laughs> afternoon and evening. Light winds becoming nor'easterly to uh, 25 kilometres an hour in the morning. So uh, if you're going to get your washing dry today, you better, unfortunately, get your skates on out of bed. Come on, out you get. No, I, you can keep listening. But I've got to say that wind has already kicked up. Yes. Yeah. It's blowing. Mm. Uh, tomorrow, 26, shower or two, and huh? then down to 19, it's kind of going to be huh? around the low 20s for the rest of the week and possible showers and here and there and a possible That's storm it. here and there. It's Nothing like, more specific than I that. I saw a 90% chance of rain on Wednesday. Yes. Yeah, wet it week. Is. It's kind of nice. Yeah, we need I the rain. Say, yeah. Um, the surf report, small swell, nor'easterly breeze, favouring the Mornington Peninsula and Phillip Island. Water temperatures 16, or we've gone up a degree. It's been 15 for a while. <laughs> Phillip Island, good one metre sets across Woolamite all day. For those of you lucky to be down on the island through this um, unofficial long weekend. Uh, on Mornington Peninsula, clean uh, 1.25 metre waves a touch bigger into the afternoon and surf coast, small half metre sets at 13th Beach and Fairhaven for keen surfers. The keen tide times, uh, it was a low tide at Port Phillip Heads at 8.57 this morning. It will be a high tide at Port Phillip Heads at 3.18 this afternoon. Many thanks to the caller who rang in. Um, during yeah. the week to uh, to set us straight on a, what the definition of a slack tide is. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Yes. There was a bit of discussion. Yeah. Um, so he was concerned... It's not just a lazy one, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. He was concerned um, that uh, we had given the impression that a slack tide is the point between the high and the low tide. And, of course, he, he was concerned that people were... I, I don't know what we actually said. I can't actually remember. Um, but some novice divers might be out there oh, and yes, actually the go out there time. right at the wrong time. So, so um, set us straight. What is I, it? I just wanted to reassure our listeners out there that we do know what a slack tide is. We might have kind of made it a little ambiguous in our communication. So the slack tide is the point... Uh, where either the low or the high, it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but where the tide stops 
Yes. And then there's like a pause where there's no... Nothing happens. Nothing happens. So there's no tidal nothing. movement. It's like the very inside of a flame. Yeah. Well, <laughs> kind happens. of the eye of the storm maybe. Yeah, maybe the eye. I'm trying yeah, to think of a, 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 a good analogy. Uh, but it's basically if the, if the tide's coming out, the water's moving, 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 and then it kind of slows down and then it stops and then it starts heading the other way. Exactly. So there's, there's a period of... And it's called slack. Slack water. Because... It's slack. It's slack. You know, the way we've always kind of known, everyone, you know, everyone knows that um, dad seahorses get pregnant. And how do they... So this is the They're other thing They're flying the flag. They're flying the flag, yeah. How, you know, and so anyway, this, is our, this is our kind of, you know, the horse thing, okay? You've got to do your obligatory horse thing. All right, so here it is. This is Marinar's horse thing for the weekend. We're going to talk about seahorses. How do you reckon you know they're dads, like they're males? Because you can't see the genitalia of seahorses. Right. And so the only way they can tell, this is just a side thing that I found as I was looking into this, the only way you can tell is by the size of the gametes, the size of the, you know, so the, because, you know, in nature, essentially, the big one is the egg and yep. the little one is the sperm yep. and you produce one big one and lots of little ones and it turns out that that's how they can tell because you can't actually really see. So are you saying bits. male and female seahorses look identical? Yes, their bits are right. particularly, can't, well, you can't find them quickly and easily. Yep. So anyway, you can really easily tell because, okay, so the males produce lots of sperm and the females, so anyway. Anyway, as we know, the male has this skin pouch on its gut. The female puts the egg in there and then the sperm kind of gets to the egg and it produces, you know, so there you go. But that's what I thought happened and right. that was it. Right. And then basically, effectively, all he's doing is like piggybacking the babies around. Yeah. And I think actually that's what science thought. Until some recent work in, at the University of Sydney, um, it's an article by um, Camilla Willington, um, Whittington, who's a postdoc uh, uh, in comparative genomics at the University of Sydney. It turns out there's much more going on. Mm. And they studied all these genetic markers and they took samples from male pouches at different stages in pregnancy and then they assessed using gene sequencing stuff how the gene expression was changing. So if they were just a bag holding babies as they developed, you wouldn't expect anything to be going on much. Mm. It turns out that there are actually lots of things happening. It's incredibly complex. There's about 3,000 genes involved at any given time. Wow. Which suggests it's not just a bag. Mm. You know, it suggests there's things going on. There actually, there are genes that actually switch on and off nutrient provision to the embryos. Right, okay. So they're actually kind of giving the nutrients in there. They, in particular, they supply them with energy-rich fats and calcium for the embryos to grow little tiny skeletons. I love the way I say little tiny skeletons. Yeah. And um, bony body rings, you know, that just they have under their skin. Um, and then there's other genes that help them remove wastes produced by the embryos, like carbon dioxide, nitrogen. So they're actually creating a full, almost uterine environment. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah. Wow. We, no one knew this. And then, and then on top of that, there are other ones that um, produce antifungal and antibacterial molecules to ward off pathogens. Huh. So it's like almost a proper kind of... It's, an, it's, a, it's a real... Pregnancy. It's a functioning nursery yeah. environment rather than just being just a bag. A, yeah. 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 So that's pretty cool. And then that's the other thing. We don't really know. I mean, you know, there's very few bits of footage of, of sea horse birth, but there is some. And, the, you know, the, the, you know how happens. They all it's, get spat out. It's and, so you know, cool. It's like these tiny little miniature things get spat yeah, out. Yeah. And it looks really cool. There's actually, again, like birth in right. humans, signals. Oh, right. And there are genetically, uh, you know, create, you know well, genetically linked signals that actually start, they cause the thing of the membrane and all kinds oh, of stuff. Oh, okay, so it's a bit like so labour. Like, yeah. It's, wow. It, very interesting stuff. Huh. 
Very interesting. And and they go on and, and the article goes on to describe the similarities but across animal pregnancies and they point out that this... The, the gene expressions and then the epigenetics, which is the kind of impact of the genes and the environment together, um, kind of make them as scientists sit back and think this is much more like an actual pregnancy mm. and a pr- not just a pouch, a bag for carrying things while they independently develop. How cool. And how much of a call is this for, and I'm going to take a step back, for funding into science? Because it just goes to show just when we think we know what's going on, it turns out that we maybe don't have the full picture. I'm sure Dr Shane will be applauding at this stage, saying bravo, bravo. But um, Oh, we absolutely don't. I mean, these are so common. That's right. Seahorses are everywhere. And how many species of fish are starting to show up as being able to produce their own body heat? Mm. So they're technically, you know, we've had this blank fish are cold-blooded animals yep. or the official term heterothermic, homothermic or heterothermic, yep. Um, but no, there's, there's, there are exceptions. And then why does this matter, you know, outside of the fact that we find this incredibly interesting? Well, we there's a the view... Seagulls? Yeah, yep. the seagulls. There's a view that, um, you know, and I'm, I'm building on your comment then about how why we don't know what we don't know. You know, there's a view effectively that, that these types of pregnancy... Let's call this a pregnancy as opposed to just pouch-minding. Mm. That, you know, they've developed through animals in a particular way and it's pretty much down to m- mammals and, and us and, you know, I guess placentals do it a bit, but, you know, that that, that whole idea is developed. It... You know, with the genetics and the understanding that they have now of the seahorse pregnancy, what it's showing is that evolutionarily the same genes that do the similar things in a seahorse as a female human Mm. may have independently arrived across all different vertebrate species. Like evolved in parallel. Or, yeah, completely convergently, you know, yeah. And so that in itself, from understanding what makes things work for human anatomy and and, and other animals and what we can do about it and how we understand it, that in itself is remarkable. Because we kind of think that, you know, somewhere along the way all these things have actually just been set. But because this is a male doing it, it just throws that whole thing out. Well, it's breaking all the rules. It is. So anyway, that's probably kind of cool, I just thought. So there we go. We don't fully understand yet exactly what happens, but that's a little extra piece in the Gene- jigsaw. Genetically, it is a bit like a parallel universe, isn't it? It as is. As far as the, the development of these particular traits, it, that it it's in the opposite gender, opposite sex, yep. and in yep. a completely different phylogenetic line. Yep. And yeah. so, the, the, so the relatives of seahorses, um, it's the females mm. that do it. So it's not like you can quickly go, oh, I'll just pass all my pregnancy genes over. Or, of course, it could mean the other thing, that all these genes are just sitting there dormant mm. inside me and some wacko somewhere is going to switch them on, you know, like... Yeah, so there's yeah. all these other... In- so it's not just about the seahorses. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Wow. Happy, happy cup day. Hey, well... well, well we, oh, were you off... Yeah, no, it's Sorry, right. yeah. Just, just a random thought about cup day. Um, because what we've sometimes done on the on Radio Marinara before the running of the cup is to have a look through the form oh, guide and try to. and look at the... We might try and do that while we're listening to some music or not. We'll oh, see. no, let's give it a break this year. Maybe we'll give the it horses. a break. That's um, our horses for the year. That. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> quick, um, quick plug, and you won't hear me. You won't hear me doing this very often. But um, firstly, thank you to um, Digit Dick, who is a subscriber yes. to Radio Marinara, or well, to Triple R, but 
through Radio Maranoa for putting us onto this. And it, and this is where I come to, you won't hear me say this very often, but I want to give a shout out to the, the, the website of the Department of Premier and Cabinet. How interesting. <laughs> because they have a whole page dedicated to the marine emblem, the common sea oh, dragon. Excellent. And so I'm going to hang on to this and at some point in time we'll kind of read through it because it's it's very accurate and there's a beautiful um, pic. It's, it's a, a painting that someone's done. I should find out who's done that too. But um, absolutely great and a, a full list of everything that you would want to know about Fantastic. the common sea dragon, their habitat, their life cycle, their diet, conservation status. So there you go. I don't think That's we'll bother. That's keeping with the horse thing. Yeah. I mean, they're related. They are. <laughs> I've got time to do a couple more oh, totally. quick yeah, bits of news. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, just a bit of a plug. For those of you who head down to St Kilda, you might see some development shortly for the St Kilda Life Saving Club. It's um, they're the, the city of Port Phillip are about to revamp it. Oh, wow. So just thought I'd throw that one in there. Not going to spend too much time talking about it. But um, it's uh, the government, Victorian government's put in a million dollars and the St Kilda Life Saving Club's putting in 100000 Wow. That's a fairly... Different, it's a, it's a, a um, different proportion of funding putting in there, but I'm guessing that's what's required. Isn't one a volunteer organisation and the other a government? Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> so that's, I, I, that's pretty good. Not it many is. volunteer organisations could pull up, bring up 100,000 bucks. That's right. But they, you know, it's a functioning life-saving club. Yeah, they do surf boat rowing and they're going to be starting a nippers program for juniors. Oh, wow. Which is very cool. And, um, well, and getting a wave generator as well. So they can, no, sorry. That's right. <laughs> no, no. Oh, we were talking a bit about that. We'll, we'll, <laughs> We'll talk more about wave generation because that's that's sort of starting to become quite interesting. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that one out there. Another one I just wanted to very quickly mention because I've been carting this one around for uh, actually it's a couple of months now. Very cool story that came through um, that there's a partnership which has set up uh, between Adidas or Adidas, 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 and Sea Shepherd. <laughs> Now, you're not no, ever going to see these no. two as bedfellows. That's fantastic. But this is actually really cool. To do what? And it follows up from a story that we reported a couple of weeks ago well, like on the prose- <laughs> successful prosecution of the um, of the captain and the first engineer yeah. uh, of the Thunder. Now, this was yeah, the yeah. vessel that Sea Shepherd chased halfway around the yeah. world and eventually they scuttled their own boat off the west coast of Africa. So what's come about? You're wondering where this is going. I, I just think this is like putting good shoes on pirates I, what happens here? so while they were in pursuit of the thunder yeah they made use of their time aside from they were doing yeah. these amazingly heroic activities by picking up bits of garbage yeah, wow. along the, line, along yeah, the okay. way yeah, yeah, yeah. and managed to collect a huge amount of plastic 110 yeah. day tracking mission but they picked up you know they just did their uh, bit, beach equivalent of beach pickup along the way so what adidas have done is they've taken this plastic and they've they've recycled it. I'm about to show you a visual oh, no here. Way. It's Into a running shoe. <gasps> it's a shoe made almost entirely from ocean garbage. Exactly. That's exactly <gasps> what it is. No. So it's so incredibly cool. Um Does and it smell? Like I doubt it. fish? No, okay. No, no. So the, the comment, this is from the Huffington Post. If you're How looking to snap up a pair, uh, it ain't for sale. But oh, okay. this is a plan. Uh, they say, um, sorry, Adidas spokeswoman, Adidas spokeswoman, this is not a plan, this is an action. We did this to show what we're capable of doing when we all put our heads together. How extraordinary. So they're actually starting to introduce recycled plastic into the manufacturing of its shoes by early 2016. So this one's coming Goodness next year. Me. And uh, I, for one, How would stand up and very happily buy a pair of oh, shoes made entirely totally. of recycled plastic from the ocean. 
That is very cool. Isn't that awesome? Hopefully it gets to a point where it can be recycled and used before it hits the ocean. Yeah, yeah well, it hopefully it won't have go to. back again. Wow. Now it's time for you all to just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fruitful trip. Last Saturday, six Victorian teachers set sail on an expedition in Moreton Bay in Queensland to assist scientists researching the health of the bay's fragile marine ecosystem. It's all been part of Earthwatch's Sailing for Seagrass research project and it takes in studying the impacts of Brisbane's coastal development on the seagrass beds that are vital for the survival of dugongs, green sea turtles and other marine life in Moreton Bay. It's with great pleasure now that we cross to Queensland, uh, I think to Brisbane we can find out, to speak with Dr James Udy, Chief Scientist of Healthy Waterways about the trip, the teachers who were chosen to take part and what they're going to do in taking the learnings from their experiences back to the classrooms. Good morning, James. Good morning. And welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Well, thank you very much. I think it's the first time I've been on radio in Melbourne, so it's a great Great privilege, thanks. Fantastic. Now, I guessed you were in Brisbane, but I'm wondering whether that's correct? Yeah, no, I live in Brisbane at Wellington Point, one of the points that sticks out into Moreton Bay Marine Park. Oh, very nice. So you get you get to see all this firsthand. Yeah, no, I keep watching it every morning. I get up to check the bay out. Oh, fantastic. Now, I mentioned you're the Chief Scientist for Healthy Waterways. I thought we might start with that. What is chief, uh, what is uh, Healthy Waterways and, and what's your role as Chief Scientist? Okay, so we're a not-for-profit organisation and we basically have three main aims. One is to understand what's happening in our waterways in the marine environment and freshwater. The second is to educate the community and politicians or decision-makers. And the third is to, in a positive way, influence uh, those decisions made by local and state government around how you invest to um, improve the condition of our waterways. And so as Chief Scientist, is it um, an advocacy role or do you, do you find that your role is particularly focused on the science? It's, you know, we're not so much an advocacy organisation as... Uh, I guess the only thing we advocate is that we should have decision-based... Um, knowledge-based decision-making. So we really see ourselves as the group that brings together and synthesises all the knowledge in the various universities and CSRO in a way that decision-makers can actually use it and base their decisions on that knowledge. Mm. Let's look at um, Sailing for Seagrass. So this is a specific program. Um, what's, what's that all about? Okay, so one of the biggest issues in Moreton Bay and probably common to a lot of the East Coast um, cities uh, in Australia, actually, is a sediment coming off our land into our waterways. So sediment is called soil when it's on a farm and it's highly productive and very important and really a great resource when it stays on the land but once it gets into our waterways it really becomes a pollution source and we're having especially after the 2011 and 13 floods large amounts of um, mud coming out we estimated over 10 million tons of sediment so that just to put your uh, listeners into context if you had to go to a landscape supply store and buy that sediment, it would cost over $1 billion. So we've basically moved over a $1 billion worth of sediment from our landscape into our waterways where it's a pollution source. So I guess the, the next question is, it came through floods and, and agricultural runoff. We have, um, we have a, a similar problem, probably not quite on that scale, but with, um, with Western Port Bay, I'm not sure if your networks include um, some of the scientists who are doing work around Western Port Bay with sediment as well. What, what is it about yeah. Moreton Bay that makes it so um, vulnerable to sediment runoff? Well, one, it does have quite a large catchment. So the catchment to waterway, uh, water, or bay ratio is quite large. I think it's about 13 to 1. 
So there's 13 times, for every hectare of water, we have about 13 hectares of land providing pollution. So sediment is, I guess, our main pollutant, but then we also do have to manage also nitrogen phosphorus, which are two dissolved nutrients, as well as any uh, toxins from our environment. Because humans have a great ability to change things and not always in a positive way for the natural environment that they actually rely on for their life support. Mm. And sediment's not just sediment. I mean, well, it is sediment, but it's it's not just dirt that's sort of come naturally out of the ground. It's everything that goes into that dirt to support the growing of plants through agriculture. And, and that's another problem that comes through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, we're really focusing. The main thing is the reduction in light for the seagrasses because seagrasses are actually a flowering plant that grows underwater. So they're actually, they've returned, they're not algae. They're quite different to algae, which some of your listeners will be used to, but um, they they have roots, rhizomes, and they even, during certain seasons, they have un- these underwater flowers that have to be fertilised. Obviously, you can't use bees underwater, so primarily they just use the water currents to fertilise themselves. But they need much more light than other things, but they're also probably the most important habitat for sustaining our recreational commercial fisheries. Um, so that's really one of the big issues is if we lose our seagrass, we'll potentially lose or have a significant decline in our fisheries. I mentioned earlier Western Port and then I kind of took us off on, on a different direction, but I wonder if we can just come back to that. It's a problem that's well known here uh, in Melbourne and in Victoria and amongst the science and, and management circles too about the problem of sediment runoff uh, on Western Port and a similar situation with seagrass that's vulnerable uh, to sediment and, um, and that smothering effect as well. Do your networks extend to some of the scientists and people doing work around Western Port? Yes, no, definitely. Actually, only, uh, I think two years ago we actually held in Moreton Bay, but it was a national workshop of seagrass scientists from around Australia. And uh, uh, scientific papers only recently come out on that, sort of trying to summarise our knowledge on the threats to seagrass populations across Australia. And that definitely includes Western Port work, as well as um, a lot of work in New South Wales and, in, and, and Western Australia. Fantastic. So let's go to Sailing for Seagrass now. And um, so this is a partnership I mentioned earlier in the program between Healthy Waterways, which is your group, and the Geography Teachers Association of Victoria. How did this come about? Well, we're also, we've, um, I guess we've recently modified our monitoring program um, to both to expand, to not only measure the environmental condition, but also look at the community benefits that we receive from waterways. And so that report code was launched just in October, so just a few weeks ago. Um, and part of that, we were trying to expand the amount of citizen science used in the data collection. And so we, uh, have, about a year ago, we entered into a partnership with Earthwatch. And this, um, this partnership with the Department of Education Victoria and the, is actually largely, it's a, I guess it's a spin-off from that. Earthwatch has done some really great um, promotional work and working with different funders and basically the Department of Education thought this would be a great opportunity to provide their teachers with both, um, I guess, continuing development as well as teaching back into the classroom. So actually while we're out in the field, we can have cl- up to 70 students talking to us through iPhones and um, actually interacting with us and feeling like they're part of that research experience. So, yeah, you've just had six Victorian teachers take part and those teachers have come from all over Victoria and not just coastal Victoria either. Can we spend a few minutes talking about them and how and why they were chosen for this particular trip? 
Okay, so I Earthwatch was really uh, led that selection process, so I can't talk a lot about the actual selection process, except I do know from talking to Earthwatch that was criteria were around the ability to not only benefit from the trip itself, but the ability to take learning back to their classrooms. And it was looking for teachers that had could demonstrate that they had already provided some sort of innovative learning experience in their own schools, as well as um, teachers actually proposing how they would use this. So the teachers had to apply and actually say, tell Earthwatch what they what they would do with this the learning they got from this program, both during the uh, five day field work, but also after the thing. So how they would integrate it back into the classroom and use it in various curriculum items. Mm. Just to give our listeners an idea of, of how, uh, sorry, of, of where the teachers have come from. So it's Tracy Gray from Port Ferry Consolidated School, um, Peter Girilami from Galen uh, Catholic College in Wangaratta. So we've got Wangaratta and Port Ferry, so long distance apart. Um, Mika Wilkins from McRobinson Girls High School in Melbourne. Um, Megan McKinley from Roeville Primary School. So there's a primary school in there as well. Um, Gemma Chaplin from John Monash Science School and Garrett Drago from Williamstown high school. So really interesting uh, mix of schools um, in terms of their geography, where they're actually located, and, and also um, the fact some of them are near the coast, some of them are away from the coast, and you've got a mix of, of secondary and primary schools. Really fascinating. Let's talk about the yeah. trip itself. Oh, sorry, you can say? Yeah, no, 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 that was really fascinating. It was actually really good to see the way the different teachers could think and borrow ideas from each other on how to take things back and make it appropriate to their age level or their their students. So, um, so even you know, from Tracy from Port Ferry was keen to go back and actually use some of the techniques we taught her in her own seagrass beds and in in the places around Port Ferry, as, as well as many of the others. Were, we're always thinking about okay, well now I've learnt this technique or this approach or this way of bringing science to life. How can I take this back and actually do it in my school with my students, you know, whether it be a creek or... And we spend a lot of time, even though we're working primarily on seagrass, talking about also measuring catchment impacts and the health of streams and creeks. Yeah, this is what I love. Um, and there's an actual quote from Tracy in the Earthwatch press release. So she was intending to share her knowledge with her students, but also with her contacts in India, Indonesia and Indigenous schools in the Northern Territory. So there's a real ripple effect from this, which you so often get from citizen science projects. Yeah, no, I think that's really the great thing. I mean, and to be honest, even though there was only six teachers on the boats and actually in the field, I'd say I've probably in that in that week talked to probably 250 or 300 students because most of those teachers had multiple classes and that's why you know, Tracy I think was the one that had she had three classes come together to Skype with us so there was a room of 70 students on the other side of the phone and they were asking us questions and just feeling part of that um, our involvement in the field and I'm sure when Tracy gets back they'll be you know asking lots of questions and she'll have a lot of follow-up and each of the teachers did uh, live blogs as well so they, they were blogging every day about the activities and some of them uh, I know Gemma had a, had a quiz where she actually didn't tell her students where she was going but huh. um, then each day she'd give them another clue and they had to try and figure out 
as close as they could where she was. And That's I think awesome. Most of them by the end of the trip worked it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, mentioned earlier about the report card. So this is an annual uh, Healthy Waterways initiative, the report card, and that some of the data collected through this process uh, will contribute to that. Can you talk us through um, what those data were and how they'll be used? Yeah, okay. So I'll just quickly give you an out of the report card so people understand it. So what we do is we take a year of, of data collection, that's environmental data collection, as well as now social and economic data, and summarise it into a very simple to understand assessment where when we break out the catchments of South East Queensland up into 18 catchments. So we just have two categories. We have environmental conditions, so that's the condition of our waterways, that's including fresh water through to marine, and then we have the um, benefit the community receives from their waterways, and that's both economic benefit as well as social benefit, and that's a star rating that we've just introduced this year. So those, so this program actually relates to both the environmental condition and the benefits the waterways receive, uh, community receives from their waterways, because um, it crosses that boundary very, very clearly where the assessment of the seagrass habitat and how healthy that is is part of the environmental conditions score but because seagrasses are so important to fisheries the actual we're also doing video footage of what lives and uses the seagrass and so that will actually be contributing to um what's what animals we see in the seagrass will actually contribute to us valuing that as a fisheries resource and that'll actually contribute to the economic value that the communities receive from their waterways. Really fantastic to see um, an example like this where you've got both the ecological and the commercial and the recreational interests all kind of coming together and understanding that they can all work together and all benefit from each other as well. One last question, James, in terms of um, this is a three-year program. Will the program run again? Yes. So uh, we actually have three trips every year. Only one of them is obviously with teachers. So uh, we have, in January, actually, we have a next trip, which is a student challenge, and that's also, uh, Earthwatch has also done a great job there getting corporate sponsors that sponsor 12 students, so that's year 11 and 12 students, to come and participate and basically have a learning experience, similar to the teachers, but obviously you, you uh, do slightly different things with a different age group. And then in August, we have a program that's open to the general public, so anybody in the public can go to the Earthwatch website and actually book to come on that trip as a citizen scientist. What a great thing to do, particularly in August, and I know that there will be probably thousands of listeners here in Melbourne who would uh, love that opportunity. So um, where can people go for more information? Well, yeah, the Earthwatch uh, website or healthywaterways.org. Um, either one could get information. And if, they, um, if they're having trouble, just go to healthywaterways.org and look for my email. That's james.ud at healthywaterways.org and I'm more than happy to help them out. Fantastic. Healthywaterways.org. We'll put a link uh, to our Facebook page and also to um, the Triple R page on the Radio Marinara website. Thanks so much for speaking with us, James. It's been great to talk to you and I'm um, looking forward to keeping in touch over certainly over the next 12 months and beyond in terms of how this wonderful program, program rolls out. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. And I think last time we had some Melbourne students, so hopefully maybe we'll get some more Melbourne students in January. Fantastic. Well, I hope so too. Oh. And um, we'll keep in touch with how that goes. Okay, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Bye for now.
Bye. Dr. James Udy, Chief Scientist of Healthy Waterways. What a wonderful program. And um, check our website out and our Facebook page for, for more details about how you uh, or people you know might want to get in, uh, be part of that. A couple of weeks ago, the Victorian Coastal Awards were announced um, at the NGV International on uh, Wednesday, the 14th of October. And um, there were about 200 individuals from volunteer groups and all kinds of stuff who um, attended the evening. Committees of management, government, non-management, non-government, etc. And i got to say, the one Welcome to Country by, um, by uh, Wurundjeri elder Tony Garby was one of the best Welcome to Countries I've ever sa- had. Mm. It was phenomenal. What made it so good? He connected through what the whole awards was about. It was mm. about coasts and marine and connection and, and, and people and, and just kind of was like saying, so look, come come on our land because you're looking after the land. Mm. And it was just, and he just spoke so well anyway. As did, and I've got to say, and I'm not a big, you know, as you were <laughs> saying before about the Department of Premier and Cabinet website, you know, you don't usually give it a big rap. I'm not a big rap. I usually don't go out there and say ministers do great jobs. But this minister, it was Lisa Neville, gave a speech that was really, she clearly really believes this stuff. Like, you know, you can tell, you know, sometimes Polly's, poor things, they've got to give a lot of speeches, you know, and probably they have to sometimes give speeches about stuff they don't nearly care about. She clearly cares about this. I wouldn't say poor things about many politicians. Well, no, but yeah. <laughs> but coming I, I back got, to what you were saying. I got time for them anyway. But, uh, yeah. This was a good speech. She really well, look, clearly I think, I think is really into this. Like with all things, I think it comes down to credit where credit's due. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Yeah. And, it really was. Uh, and I should declare I uh, a conflict of interest, a potential conflict of interest here. I'm now a council member for the Victorian Coastal Council for the next council. I had no involvement in the nominations or recommendations or awards or judging, but um, on into the future I may do. But anyway, that's just a, a declaration there. Um, I, I'm going to quickly run through. There's five categories, natural environment, education, community engagement, planning and management and design and building. And then, of course, there's the big one, the um, the uh, Outstanding Individual Achievement Award and the Marine um, Victorian Marine Science Consortium gives a postgraduate award. So I'll quickly run down through them, but starting with the Natural Environment one, um, it was a joint winner and there were two fantastic joint winners. And I think this is what I wanted to give people a, a sense of is, as is always the case, it's the community groups and the volunteer groups and the people running on the smell of an oily rag and it's excellent when they get um, awarded and honoured the, and the Janja Coast Action Group was formed um, way back in 94 and, and then its first aim was to restore Bells Beach Coastal Reserve and they showed photos of the 80s and 90s in the car park and Bells and you probably remember this mm. and what it looks like now and it's unbelievable so they've rehabilitated four kilometres of coastal foreshore Volunteer work. Wow. 50 members doing monthly working bees for, for that long, four kilometres of coastal foreshore. From one... Extraordinary uh, From memory, work. at one stage, Ripker were kind of having their staff, it was part of their yeah, right. annual planning to yeah, make wow. sure that their staff participated in these awesome. as well, which I thought was just sensational. Uh, it, it, yeah, they've done fencing and interps. They've worked with, I guess, Parks Victoria and whoever else is down that way. But anyway, it's fa- and the Great Ocean Road Coastal Committee. Mm. And they were joined winner with the um, Sea Search Program at Parks Victoria, um, 10 years of corner inlet sea search, seagrass monitoring, just picking up on the seagrass thing mm. from this morning. And, um, and Jonathan Stevenson and a group of about 80 dedicated snorkelers and divers go 
go down there and been doing it for 10 years, longest running study under the Sea Search banner. Uh, and for the first time, managers have information on seasonal growth trends, changes in density, reproduction, epiphyte growth patterns, all kinds of stuff. And it's really making a difference. So that they won. They were great joint winners. On your Jono. Um, the <laughs> Building and Design Award, I'll jump to that. Um, and, and, and it's also good to recognise people whose job it is to do these things. So the, the Frankston Council um, and Frankston Foreshore um, Group for a particular development, the McCulloch Avenue Beach Entry. Um, it's, a beach, it's a bridge across Cannonall Creek linking Seaford Cannonall area and apart from looking aesthetically, you know, beautiful, it's actually also a, a safe thing and it also goes with the dune. It moves along the, the dune lines and it's a beautiful piece of design. So that's a good one. And then I'll pick the other government one, another government one or another one. Yep. Um, and that was for the um, Planning and Management Ward and that was to the EPA and that was for a marine model. So it's good to get the recognition through for the, you know, local government government. Can I go back to Frankston I want to go to community. Oh, yeah. Just really super quickly. Mm -hmm. It's one of those... And we might get the people from Frankston um, on the show, I think, to talk about this specifically. It's the ripple effect beyond actually just making a, a small piece of coastline look good. It's it, it's that pride that it then instills... That's exactly ...with right. the local community. And then yeah. that brings in volunteers and that brings in more citizen science and then this... And I, there, that's where my knowledge of, of this particular no, project true. ends. But then you can kind of see things moving five, ten years from now. And it can build it's into so things like um, what happened then in the Community Engagement Award. Now, it's a different area, but the Friends of Beware Reef have conducted something like 4,000 dives, you know, wow. over years, you know, 13 years photography, um, 200 presentations to school. These are all just... These are divers, you know, old men and women down that way, been diving for 20, 30, 40 years, and they got recognised at Community Engagement Board. 200 presentations to schools and interest groups on their own time. The last two things I want to pick up on um, were the um, Victorian, Victorian Marine Science Consortium Postgraduate Award, and that went to Marlene Rod Rodriguez-Malagon, and she's at Deakin Uni um, working on... Um, foraging specialisation of Australasian gannets, only because gannets are my favourite bird. But the big one, the most important one in the last minute, was the Individual Outstanding Achievement Award, and that went to Bob Siemens, Bushy Bob from Mallacoota, pivotal member of the Friends of Mallacoota and, and Mallacoota Coast Care Group. He's been... He was a park ranger years ago, but he basically has been... He's the guy that's led the groups, done the bird observations, the monitoring and survey, got all the, you know, out through Crudging Along National Park. 16 years he's been heavily involved in getting a sea spurge or at least trying to get out of control. 50 kilometres of coastline they've been working on with remote beaches and they bushwalk in and they pull it out and amazing, you know, lifetime achievement award, well worth it. So um, you can have a look at um, vcc.vic.gov.au and you can get the lowdown on all the awards. Awards. A great evening and I think, you know, really well-deserved winners in those community categories and, of course, the other categories as well, but really recognising the community and the input the community have made and those members have made volunteer hours for years. And I want to put out a really big shout-out to other nominees who didn't walk away with yeah. the, the award because it's... I often feel that the, the nominees are kind of just regarded as a bag of nominees and each one of those groups has done an incredible job with the all of the work that they've been doing as well. So big shout-out. Big shout-out because the nominees are all winners as well. Yeah. No, it's very true. And you see all the videos of them all and you think, how on earth would the judging panel have picked? Mm. You know, between them. Amazing. <laughs>
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.